Where we left off in 2 Samuel chapter 22, we're going to begin in verse 32, even though we're going to look at verses 33 to the end of the chapter. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power. And he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and become frightened or come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king. He shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Remember that David began the chapter with a song of thanksgiving for being saved or delivered from his enemies in verses 1 through 32. And the song began with strong praises for God's protection in verses 2 through 7. And then God's power in verses 8 through 16. And God's provision in verses 17 through 25. And then God's perfect justice in verses 26 through 28. And then God's proven dependability in verses 29 through 32. Now David's attention is going to shift to praise and thanksgiving for being not just victorious over his enemies, but set over his enemies. The song of praise and thanksgiving consists of a declaration of gratitude for being given everything that David needed in order to defeat his enemies. And this becomes an insight for each of you. The Bible says in the New Testament that you've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be tremendous pressure that's put on you as a Christian, 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. There's going to be pressure that's going to call you and say, Jesus isn't everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness. And one of the things that you're going to have to come to the realization is that that's exactly who he is and what he is. The Lord has imparted to David the skill that it will take to defeat all of his enemies. That's what it says in verses 33 through 37. The strength to defeat his enemies, verses 38 through 46. But then we discover something when we come to the end of the song. David is a warrior because David is a worshiper. His strength comes from the Lord. Remember, his victory over his enemies comes in direct proportion to his humility and submission to the God that he serves. That's the point. David was no stranger to tragedy or trial or tribulation. And those of you who have followed along in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, as you chronicle the life of David and you go, wow, I had no idea that he was so messed up and that his family was so messed up and that his circumstances were so messed up. But David knew that when the times were tough, the only lasting source of security is the Lord himself. And one of the realities is you perhaps will never come to the dependent conclusion that the Lord himself is the source of security until you face those difficult times. And that's what we saw in verses 2 through 20. David knew desperate times, dark times, when the road ahead was pitch black. David knew that the Lord would be his only light. In verses 21 through 31. So I want you to think this through. David says, the only source of lasting security is the Lord. The only source of light in dark times is the Lord. And now at the end of the chapter, he says, the only source of strength is the Lord. (laughs) The only source of light, the only source of strength, the only source of power. And then he says at the end of the chapter, when there is a deep, dark, black, whole. The Lord is the only hope. And that's why he mentions the future in verses 50 through 51. Now, if you're a note taker, and if you're one of those people who like to mark your Bible, there are seven specific areas where God is faithful and strong and provides victory over his enemies that's found in the passage that we just read. The specific areas of strength and provision and power over the enemies, first of all, is found in verse 38. And in verse 38, remember what it says, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. And so David says, I, the Lord will give you the power to seek out and destroy all of your enemies. The Lord will give you the power to crush, wound, subject enemies so that they're powerless to rise up again in verse 39. So not only is there strength to destroy the enemy, power to subjugate the enemy, that's number two. There's also the force to wage spiritual war and then bring the fight to the enemy in verse 40. And so the strength to destroy, the power to crush, the force to wage spiritual war in verse 40. And then in the passage it says, to decisively defeat the might, 
the power to defeat and completely destroy your enemy who even though they cry out have no one to save them. Not even the Lord will answer them when they cry out for him. Why? Why won't the Lord respond to them? And the reason is because of their evil, wicked lives. There are people who live under the illusion, you know what, I can live my life in any wicked way that I want, and I know, here's what will happen at the very last moment, at the the very last day, the very last hour, here's what I'll do. I'll cry out to God, and I'll cry out to Jesus, and he'll deliver me. You know what? God is gracious and God is kind and God is merciful. And we do thank God that so long as we're able to draw breath that the Bible seems to to indicate that he'll respond to us. But guess what? Tomorrow isn't promised to you. And the one problem with your theology is you never know when that last moment is going to happen. Last night when I was flying back from Albuquerque, Uh, I was taking the flight from Albuquerque. We were going over northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. And a plane was coming from the east from Washington, D.C. And there was a gigantic storm and a gigantic cloud and gigantic winds. And 20 people had to be taken to the hospital at the the exact time that, that we were landing. It was amazing. But guess what? If a person pulls into a lane, if a person all of a sudden does something completely unexpected, you could die a lot quicker than even you could imagine. There's strength, power, force, might. There's the energy in verse 43 to to shame and disgrace the enemy. There's the determination to address and conquer the attacks from his own people, including his immediate family and the nation Israel, and the strength to become the conqueror of both the seen and the unseen forces that seek to destroy his life. And that's what it says in verses 44 through 46. So over and over and over again, David makes the claim that the true and the living God will take care of you. Look again in verse 33. God is my strength and power. It may seem like an almost throwaway line, but for many people, God isn't their strength and their power. Their own will is their strength and their power. Their own determination is their strength and their power. Their theological acuity is their strength and their power. Their rightness is their power. Their giving is their power. But guess what? There's no strength or no power that's going to hold up under pressure unless it's the Lord. And when it says, he makes my way perfect, the Lord is both the source and the resource. And the word perfect is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It means complete, but it means way more than complete. It means flawless, but the word describes something that is even way more important than flawless. The word perfect means perfect from every angle, perfect from every direction, complete. You've probably heard the expression, that's your point of view. I have my point of view, and you have your point of view. The Bible says that God doesn't have a point of view. God only has points to view. Now, if you're a supreme being and you can see all things from every angle, guess what? That makes you perfect. So what does he mean when it says he makes my way perfect? 
what David is saying is that God has the ability to look in every direction, at every moment, from every circumstance, seeing every perspective. And then he's able to take care of you. He's able to take care of you from every corner, from every position. So in verse 34, it says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. This doesn't mean just simply happy feet. This doesn't simply mean that you, someone, someone saw me on a video and they were making fun of me online and they said, do you know Joracey looks a little light in the loafers? Yeah, you're laughing, yeah. And I didn't have the heart to tell them that I was born with a shortened Achilles tendon. You know, uh, I was born with a physical disability that it was almost painfully impossible for me to put my heel down and my toe down. And from the time I was in the second grade till the time I was in the fourth grade, I had to wear Frankenstein monster shoes. And the Frankenstein monster shoes with the braces were to retrain my legs and my feet so that I could put my heel down and my toe down. Do you realize that you can disguise almost every portion of your body, but it's almost impossible to disguise your walk? And because I was born with a disability and because the disability followed me into my adulthood, every once in a while, quite against my ability to make it go different, I go instead of from heel to the toe, I go from the toe to the heel. And so I become the object of amusement. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Because guess what? The Lord makes my feet like the feet of a deer. I'm able to spring around. I look like I'm in a constant state of happiness and joy. He sets my feet on high places. That's the point that David is trying to make. Not that David is light in the loafers, but rather he's able to spring at a moment's notice in perfect joy to all that God has. So he's speaking not only of agility, but look at verse 35. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Have any of you ever had some fun with archery? Have you ever shot a bow? And some of you may have shot a bow, you know, for sport or for, for fun. But there's different kinds of bows. There's fiberglass bows. There's wooden bows. And typically a bow is measured by pounds of pressure of the draw. Can you imagine how much strength it would take to bend a bow that's made of bronze? But this is the point. David is ascribing to God, God's ability to superintend his circumstances so that he can be an able warrior. Now, I need to help you understand something. When David says, he teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze, he talks about God's ability to instruct him, but also God's ability to strengthen him. Here's the danger. The danger is that we sometimes think that our agenda is God's agenda. That's the danger. The danger is we assume that what we want is what God wants. What we desire is what God desires. What we see as our present and our future is what God sees as our present and our future. But that might not be true. And there's only one way for you to find out. And that's to ask him. It's to say, Lord, 
I have grown up in a world where I've pretty much made my own decisions. But Lord, I want you to be the decision maker. I want you to open up my mind and my heart. Lord, I want to make sure that the thing that I desire is the thing that you desire. And the future that you have for me is the future that you want for me. In other words, we would do well to determine God's plan and then act in accordance with God's divine revelation. And by the way, the Lord has given us a supernatural instruction manual on how to wage war. Now remember, he says, he teaches my hands to make war. But the Bible also gives you instruction on how to engage in the battle and wage war. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, many of you are going to be familiar with that because that's the passage that talks about spiritual warfare and putting on the armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, we're told how to walk in victory. Some of you have an apartment. Some of you have a house. I don't know what circumstances you may live in, but typically you'll have a closet where you keep your clothes. You'll have a pantry where you keep your food. But I'm wondering if you have a promise pantry. Do you have a place either in your mind or in your heart where you can tuck away the promises of God so that in the event of an emergency you can go there? For me, the place where I keep my promises is in the concordance of my Bible. See, you laugh, but you go, hey, you know what? If you have a Bible, the object isn't for you to know everything about everything, but you need to be able to go to the place where you can have access to that and where, thank God, your concordance is in alphabetical order. And so if you don't have one, you should be able to have one where you can go, hey, I need to know about this promise of assurance. I need to know about this promise about salvation. I need this one for mercy or for courage or for despair and for spiritual warfare. If you don't have a promise pantry, it's in Ephesians chapter 6, where we're told how to walk in victory. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, it describes the enemy we fight in verses 10 through 12, the equipment we wear in verses 13 through 17, the energy that we use in verses 18 through 24. The Bible says that you have enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. He is powerful. He is wicked. He is deceitful. And because he's powerful and wicked and deceitful, God gives you equipment. The equipment is truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation. Here's part of what you need to be able to understand. God issues you equipment for everything that you need, not only to enter into the battle, but to be successful in the battle. If our equipment is truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation, Satan's equipment are lies, deception, confusion, unrighteousness or wrong thoughts, condemnation, accusation, fear, anxiety, alternative wisdom. That means the wisdom of human beings rather than the wisdom of God or false philosophies or failed religious systems. Now think about that for just a moment. 
Because if your life is marked by deception, confusion, lies, unrighteousness, condemnation, accusation, fear, and anxiety, then guess what? You've been issued the wrong equipment. And so, we're given armor and weapons for battle, but armor and weapons for battle in and of themselves won't help you overcome the enemy. They're the first start, but they're not the last start. This is why the Bible also makes it abundantly clear that we have other resources, including prayer and including the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, look at verse 38. It says, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. In other words, David is given the strength to pursue, to hunt down and eliminate the enemy. What that means for you as a Christian is it's the willingness to see the task through to a completion. You know... When you're a police officer, in order to become a police officer, usually you have to go through uh, police officer safety training. There's an academy training to become in the, in the FBI. There's a, there's a place called Quantico in the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force. There's a boot camp. There is a time, a disciplined time that is set aside that you begin and you go through the training and then you graduate from the training. In order to pursue and destroy the enemy, there has to be a sense of a willingness to see the task through to the end. And by the way, our energy comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit and our dependence upon God through prayer. When we pray in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit empowers us for the battle. The Word of God and the Spirit of God are the resources that have been given to us by God, not only to engage the battle, but to succeed in the battle. And that's the point. The word of God and and prayer are the resources that we've been given to overcome the enemy and then take back the ground that has been captured by Satan so that we can return it to where it belongs for God's glory. You know... When David says, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. If I were to ask you the question, who are your enemies? What are your enemies? What would you say? Would you come up with the pat answer? The world, the flesh, the devil. If you come up with the pat answer, the pat answer is still correct. The world, the flesh, the devil are your enemies. But what about other enemies? Examine your own heart because each and every one of you are going to have a different question to the answer. What or who constitute the strongholds in your life? It could be who knows what. It could be unforgiveness. It could be witchcraft, addictions, selfishness, bitterness, hate, pride, sexual preoccupations, rebellion, vain imaginations, the desire to get rich or stay rich, whatever it is, whatever it is, look at your own heart and ask and answer the question, what is it that afflicts me, that terrorizes me, that is constantly hounding me? It could very well be that the time has come For you to take the battle to the front. 
where you realize that it is God who has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. It is the Lord who has provided for you in the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the promises of the scripture to begin to address these issues. In verse 39 it says, And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. You have to understand something. David understood what it meant to hit and what to hit, when to hit, and to make sure that the enemy stayed down. Satan attacks us at those points where we think that we are strong and and well fortified. In verse 40 it says, For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. Now remember the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians are intended for protection. If you look at the helmet of salvation, if you look at the shield of faith, if you look at the breastplate of righteousness, if you look at the sandals or the, the gospel of, the, of God, which is your sort of your feet covering, so to speak, you are only given one offensive weapon. What is it? It's a sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. You're given one offensive weapon. And you'll remember in the New Testament when Jesus addresses the issues of an onslaught against Satan. How does Satan, um, how does Jesus address Satan in the battle? Over and over again when Satan tempts and tests, Jesus responds with the word of God or the promise of God or the declaration of God or the expectation of God. No wonder Satan is a liar. But here's the point. With the presence of the Holy Spirit, there's a reason why the Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. And there is a reason why the Bible is called true. It is true. Because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and because the Bible is the word of truth, then you have an indestructible, impregnable source of protection against the onslaught of lies. Here's the point. You don't simply know the truth. You possess the truth. And the truth possesses you. There's a reason why the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He wants to slander us, but we're called to walk in righteousness. Satan is a divider and a destroyer, but with Jesus comes peace. Not peace with evil, not peace with sin, not peace with this world system, not peace with anyone and everyone who still responds in rebellion against God, but peace with God. In other words, your job as a Christian is to create a mechanism where other people in rebellion will be willing to lay down their arms and say, you know what? Rebelling against God is not a good idea. Rebelling against God, estrangement from God, is a horrible place to be in your life. And so God calls you out of darkness into light. He calls you. Instead of in rebellion to peace, we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ, David's son. And so, in verse 41, look what it says. 
You have given me the necks of my enemies. What that means is in subjugation. When a person was flat on their face and your boot is on the back of their neck, they're in a place of defeat and vulnerability. That's the point. In other words, in a battle, if he has his foot on your neck, that means you're, you're in the position of sub submission and vulnerability. By the way, it was an ancient way of talking about disgracing and shaming your enemy. Look what it says in verse 42. They looked, but there was none to save. In other words, when you're in a position of humility and subjugation, you're looking around for help. You're looking for someone who will come and rescue from the position of submission and humility. But it says in verse 43, Then I beat them as the fine dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. In other words, the subjugation, the shame, the humiliation was so thorough that there was no chance that they would ever rise up again. It's sort of like the way that Mr. T used to talk back in the olden days on TV when he goes, I'm going to beat you like a dog. I'm going to rip your arm off and beat your head in with a bloody stump. You know, it's, that, it's sort of like Hebrew trash talking here. Only it's the ultimate in Hebrew trash talking. Satan uses doubt and unbelief, but our chief resource is faith. Faith is what overcomes every foe. Not our faith in faith, but rather our faith in Jesus Christ. And so if we were to take one word, if we were to take this particular chapter and boil it down into one word, it's the word faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And because God is faithful, God is faithful to deliver you from your enemies. God is faithful to strengthen you. God is faithful to protect you. God is faithful to provide for you. So David declares the faithfulness of God. We believers use the shield of faith, the Bible says, to quench the fiery darts of doubt and unbelief. And so for us... When Paul gives us the instructions about how we're to engage in the battle and we lift the shield, the shield is the shield of faith. But often what we do in order to quench the fiery darts of doubt and unbelief, we want the untested shields that human beings provide. The wisdom of men, the folly of men. But here becomes the point. You will always, for the rest of your life, I guarantee this, every moment that you remain alive on this planet, every single morning when you wake up, and every single day that you live for the rest of your life, you're going to be given a wonderful opportunity. And the wonderful opportunity is to believe the promises of God or believe the lies of Satan. And the only way that you can know the promises of God are to open up your Bible. You see, opening up your Bible isn't just a religious discipline that you do because that's what Christians do and that's what you need to do in order to make God happy so that he's looking down on you and like, you know, you're showing up for class. 
one of the difficult things about making the transition from high school to college. Remember, when you were in high school, everybody was looking out for you. There was attendance. There was a role. And if you didn't show up, they would call your mom. Mrs. Geraci, uh, we noticed Gino isn't at school today. What? You don't ditch because you know you're going to get caught. But when you go to college and you're paying big bucks, do they care if you show up? They don't care at all. They don't take the, the they, you know, they don't, they don't call your mother and go, you know, Gino ditched physics today. It would be nice because they'd say, I paid $120 for that one class. But God isn't in heaven keeping a checklist of your spiritual disciplines. What God is doing is heaven is an armory. It's the place of the resources where you get outfitted in order to deal with the very dangerous circumstances that you face. And so David talks about some of those dangerous circumstances. In verse 44, he says, you've also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You've kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. In other words, remember, God appointed David to be the king. And remember, there was a rebellion. There was a a rebellion. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. Did everyone want David to be the king? No. And, And sadly, the rebellion found its source in his own son. But David reminds them and says, you've kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. Even foreigners would serve him. I think it also is a prophetic glimpse into the future that King Jesus David's son and the future king will be one day the head of all of the nations and the nations means people groups ethnos David knew the danger of the strivings of people and remember Jesus spoke about Satan who steals the good seed of the word in Matthew chapter 13 verse 19 Jesus knew that Satan would sow tares among the wheat. And it becomes a type in a picture in Matthew chapter 13. That even within the church, you're going to have people who are born again. And you're going to have people who are not born again. In the church, you're going to have believers. And you're also going to have make-believers. And you're making a serious mistake if you think that the dividing line between the believer and the make-believer is because they come to Calvary Chapel or because they have a Bible or because they sit in that seat or they're sitting even in the seat next to you or behind you. The difference between the believer and the make-believer isn't if they come to church and they have a Bible. The difference between the believer and the make-believer is a settled sense that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why it says in 1 John chapter 5 that he who has the Son has life. It doesn't say he who has Calvary has life or he who has a leather Bible has life or he who knows all of the theological answers to all of the questions has life. The person who has life is the person who is truly, really, legitimately connected to David's son. And because Satan sows tares among the wheat, 
because there are make-believers among the unbelievers, or, or there, are, there are make-believers among the true believers. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 38 through 39, when the answer was questioned, well, what should we do? Should we, should we rip out the make-believers so that we have only believers in our midst? No. The Bible says that's not for you to judge. But there will come a time when the God who knows every heart and every circumstance will plant the righteous and will uproot the unrighteous. What's the point? David has been given skill to defeat his enemies. And so in verse 47 it says, well, actually, in, in verse 44, he says, You've also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You've kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known will serve me. The foreigners submit to me. And remember, he's talking about those people who are outside of the covenant community. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The idea becomes a person who asks and answers the question concerning the legitimacy of David's right to rule. Now again, there's going to come a time in a future kingdom where people will question the legitimacy of David's son right to rule. And that becomes part of the point. In other words, the foreigners submit to me as soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The, the implication being those people who were outside the sovereign circumstances of David come out of the woodwork and say, we are now willing to subject ourselves to the lordship of David as king. There will come a time when people will come out of the woodwork and they will subject themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, there's going to be something pretty, pretty obvious when a Jew comes from heaven, lands on the Mount of Olives, says he's Jesus of Nazareth. Do you think that this is, that a lot of people are going to go, wow, got me. Hey, I thought that the Bible was a fairy tale. I thought all of those prophecies about Jesus coming back, hey, kill me now. Because I lived my life in rebellion and disobedience. But there's going to come a group of people who are going to go, my bad. Hey, I was wrong about you. So what's going to happen? Well, there are going to be those people who accept the rule and there are going to be those who reject the rule. Now look what it says. He bursts out in song again in verse 47. He says, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted. The rock of my salvation. Now you have to understand something. In the ancient world of David, the pagan neighbors had what was known as a pantheon of gods. Molech, Baal, in Greece, they had Zeus and, and Hera. In Rome, um, they had a pantheon of gods. And you can imagine, in the ancient world, they constructed gods who could be limited, and gods who could be tricked, and gods who could be imprisoned, gods who could be swallowed, gods who could be killed. Even in their perverted and twisted way of thinking, they made up gods that could be tricked 
or killed. And David is presenting the reality that the God of Israel is not only alive, but he's an everlasting God who ever lives. The Lord God of Israel was active. You can't kill the God of Israel. He cares for the needs of his people. He responds to their prayers. In the New Testament, the the writers of the New Testament say, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. In the book of Revelation, as John is, is, is writing and he speaks of the resurrected Jesus and Jesus shows up and he says, Behold, I am he who is dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. What do you do with a person who is eternal and immutable and not subject to change? You see, this is the reason why the promises of God and the protection of God and the security of God and the power of God can be trusted. David describes the Lord God of Israel in stark contrast to his neighbors. The Lord lives. By the way, do the failed philosophies or the wisdom of human beings, let me just put it to you this way. An idea can come to life at the moment that the idea is presented. So let's say a human idea is presented. The world is a flat space on the back of a turtle. Hey, that's a great idea. The problem with the idea? It's not true, is it? The world isn't flat, and it doesn't reside on the back of a turtle. The world is round, or spherical at least. Human beings can come up with an idea. The earth is at least hundreds of millions of years old. No, the earth is now a billion years old. No, the earth is now 3 billion years old. No, the earth is now 4.2 billion years old. No, the earth is now 5 billion years old. Now, the solar system is 13.1 billion years. No, the universe is 14 billion years. These are all interesting ideas. The problem is the idea seems to evolve in direct proportion to human beings' ability to comprehend the vastness of the universe. And now when you take the circumstances that we face and we see as far as we have ever seen, and we begin to understand something. That the universe is far more complex and far more mysterious and far more amazing and far more radical than anyone ever dreamed. David describes a God who lives, a God who is unmoving, a God whose strength and power perfects the circumstance that you find yourself in. And so... Now think about this. Think of the contrast of the God of the Bible with the false thoughts of human beings. The God of the Bible doesn't act in a pointless or a purposeless way. The God of the Bible's actions are fully just and always appropriate. The God of the Bible's promises can always be relied on. The God of the Bible gives light and help and assistance to his servants when they need it. The God of the Bible, because he gives light and help and assistance to his servants who need it, but human beings say there is is no light other than the light that's shining in the sky. And that life 
is pointless and purposeless. That the universe is a closed system and you are the sum and the substance of a series of remarkable mistakes that have somehow come to fruition in you. But the Bible says, no, the God of the Bible is alive. The God of the Bible is self-existent. The God of the Bible is the source of life. And look at verse 48. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. David reminds him, just like what Paul does in the book of Romans when he says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It is not your job, necessarily, to make justice reign in the land. Unless you're a judge or a police officer, then maybe some, you know, it is your job to, to make sure that justice is rendered. But David points out that it is God who ultimately is in charge of justice. It is God who actually has brought David to a place of elevation and the people of subjugation. And so it is the Lord who has placed the enemies of David under David's feet. And think about this. The point of the subjugation is that it is the Lord who is to be praised and worshiped. And look at verse 49. It says, He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me above those who rise against me. You've delivered me from the violent man. Once again, the Lord frees David from all of his enemies, exalting him and rescuing him. Now, th think about this David is delivered from his enemies for the purpose that he is now free to worship God and praise God. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe that's one of the reasons why God wants to free you from your enemies? There's a reason why you're not to be in subjugation to your fear. You're not to be in subjugation to your addictions. You're not to be in subjugation to your preferences. You're not to be in subjugation to the failed philosophies and the wisdom of human beings. Because what it does is it entraps you and it leads you in a direction of bondage and enslavement. But you've been freed in Christ. And because of the freedom of Jesus Christ, now you're free to pray. And you're free to worship. And you're free to participate in praise. That's the whole point. That's why it says in verse 50, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. In other words, when he says, I'm giving you thanks... And he says the Gentiles, which means the nations. He's talking about a people who are a not a part of the covenant community who haven't necessarily been exposed to the power of God and the praise of God and the worship of God and the splendor of God and the glory of God and the majesty of God and the attributes of God. But you have. You've been exposed, not just exposed to the true and living God. But you've been saved and rescued by the true and living God from the worst intractable enemy, sin. He's forgiven you. 
and saved you so that you don't have to walk in guilt and fear and desperation. And so he says, this gives me the opportunity to declare among a people who don't even know you and sing praises to your name. Do you realize that Psalm 23 is one of the most quoted songs in every culture, in every society? You can go to China. You can go to Afghanistan. You can go to Africa. You can go almost anywhere on the planet Earth and say these words, The Lord is my shepherd. And whether you're a Buddhist in Nepal, or an atheist in Germany, or an agnostic in Littleton, And he'll say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. People continue to sing David's songs in every generation. That is an amazing thing. And in verse 51 it says, he's the tower of salvation to his king. That means he is the source of of rescue to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. I want you to understand in part what verse 50 and 51 are saying. When he says he's the tower of salvation to his king, he shows mercy to his anointed. Is this a reference to his anointed in the sense that he has anointed David to be king? I think that that's part of the sense, but I think that there's a future prophetic sense which is also included in the text that this becomes the very definition of, you, if you will, of David's future son. He's called the anointed one, the Messiah. To David, it says, and his descendants. Do you know what that means? David is thinking about the future and the place of God, not only in his future, but in his children's future and in his children's children's future and their future. He dares to see a future. Now listen carefully with his descendants in that future. There's going to be a tomorrow. You've heard the song, the sun will come out tomorrow. But it's more than just wishful thinking on the part of a show tune. It's a promise because God has made a promise to David that Israel's victories will be linked, listen carefully, Israel's victories will be linked to Israel's faithfulness and obedience. God's steadfast love is not based on something so whimsical or wishy-washy as people's desire to cooperate. But God's love is a steadfast love. It's a loyal love. It's, it's social and political fortunes may change, but God's love doesn't change. And so David sees a future with David's son in that future. Now, I want you to think about the whole song as a whole, just for a moment. 
In verses 2 through 20, David sings about a God who is our security. In verses 21 through 31, he sings about a God who is our light. He sings in verses 32 through 49 about a God who is our power. And now at the end of the song, he sings about a God who is our hope. Can you believe that? Victory over enemy. Because God is our security. Victory in the darkness because God is our light. Victory even in our weakness because God is our power. Victory even in darkness and uncertainty about the future because the Lord is our hope. That is a song that's worth singing. And these are promises that are worth keeping in your pantry. You should put a little special marker right next to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Because I have a feeling when you're living in a world of insecurity and you need security, when you're living in a world of darkness and you need light, when you're living in a world of desperate weakness and you need power, and when you're living in a circumstance... Where you don't know what the future holds. And the thing that you need is hope. This is the place to revisit. Because Jesus sees your future. And the future that Jesus sees is a future where you're with him. And he's with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, what a wonderful God. You are faithful. And so we believe that we are secure. You are faithful. And so we can see clearly. You are faithful. And so even when we are weak, we can become strong. Lord, we know that it's in our weakness that you perfect power. And Lord, we know that you're the God of hope and you're the God of the future. And Lord, because you see us with you, Lord, you've given us an insight, the the ability to see us with you also in the future. And so again, Lord, we thank you for this song of David. Lord, I pray for each and every person that they would find a precious pantry, a place to safely store these promises when times are difficult and when the whole world looks dark and black and empty. Lord, we pray that the light of Jesus Christ would be placed right in front of us and that we could see as far as you want us to be able to see into the future. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stay.